0: Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I'm your host, Kim. I'm talking about an honour killing today and the really frightening thing about this is that this story happened in our own backyard so prepare to get a little bit upset over this one. It's one thing to say in our society that we aren't as equipped to see all the signs of an impending honor killing, but you'd think by now domestic violence is something that we could easily identify and try to intervene in. Now, this story isn't being told by me to talk smack about another culture or religion or any other way of thinking of living one's life, so please don't go thinking that I have any preconceived ideas about a person's cultural background and how they think. This is just the story of a single family living in Canada with very archaic beliefs. This is the murders of Rona Amir, Zainab, Zahar, and Gidi Shafia. Back in 1988, in Kabul, Afghanistan, Mohammad Shafia married his second wife, Tuba. Now, Tuba wasn't his second wife because his first wife had died or they had divorced. She was his second wife because his first wife, Rona Amir, had not been able to have children. So as was somewhat customary in their culture, Muhammad took Tuba as a second wife. In Afghanistan, um, because it was legal, they were actually legally married. But He was legally married there to both Rona and Tuba. Muhammad had married Rona Amir back in 1978, and he had owned and operated a very successful importing business. Rona Amir had been the daughter of an Afghan army colonel. She had finished 11th grade, and over the first few years of their marriage, she had tried to conceive children, uh, but even with some medical intervention, she'd not been able to. So Mohammed sort of began to pick on her about that, so she had relented to a second wife uh, to please her husband. And on September 9th, 1989, Zainab, their daughter, was born. And then on December 31st, 1990, a son named Hamad followed And then they had Sahar, um, another daughter on October 22nd, 1991, and another baby girl in 1992. Now, this daughter is not named in any of the court documents. She's just known as MS. So four kids, one year apart. And you'd actually think that Tuba would be happy to have a second wife there to help out and help. She definitely did. But Tuba's relationship with Rona was marred from the beginning by Tuba taking kind of an authoritarian role over Rona because Tuba considered herself the real wife because she had been able to provide Muhammad with children and Rona had not been able to. However, Tuba did give Rona Sahar, her second oldest daughter, to raise as her own. But it was really more symbolic because they all kind of lived together. Um, So it was kind of an informal thing. And according to Rona, she says, quote, little by little, Tuba implemented all the schemes she had and drove me deeper into misery without allowing any blame or censure for herself. Near the end of 1992, the family fled to Pakistan because of the war that had broken out in in Kabul. In Pakistan, they had three more children, another son, another daughter, and their last uh, and youngest daughter named Giti. The family then moved to Dubai shortly after Zainab and um, Hamid were in school. They moved to Australia for about a year in 2001, but then back to Dubai before deciding and when I say deciding, it was, wasn't likely a family decision, but more of a Muhammad decision to move to Canada. Now, having two wives isn't legal in Canada. So, Tuba and the children were originally brought over to Canada where they settled in Montreal. And that happened on June 14th, 2007. So, Zanab was the oldest. She would have been about 18 years old at that time. Arona followed on a visitor's visa a little while later. And, and now she came as Muhammad's cousin because, of course, it wasn't legal for him to have two wives. And that visitor's visa was supposed to expire on August 30th, 2009. I don't know what the plan was with Rona's visa, if they were going to try and extend it or send her back to Afghanistan or to Dubai. Uh, Sometime after Rona had arrived in Canada to live again with the family, Rona mentioned to both her sister and Tuba's brother about how Muhammad and Tuba were sort of treating her. Apparently, she had asked Muhammad for a divorce at one point and... $50,000, like a $50,000 settlement so that she could move to France and away from them. And when she brought it up to him, he'd slapped her, told her no, and then ordered the children not to speak to her. Rona wrote very extensively about her troubles in her journal, which she kept up to 2008. She wrote about Muhammad's beatings. The children would come to her defense, but then Muhammad would tell um, the children that she had insulted Tuba, who's their mother, and that she deserved it. Rona said, in short, he made life a torture for me. Around 7 a.m. on the morning of June 30th, 2009, boaters who regularly traveled the Raidu Canal system between Colonel Lake and Lake Ontario, which is normally regulated by a series of locks at the Kingston Mills, uh, when boats need to pass, the lock gates open and then the boat goes through and the gates close and lock again. But on this morning, they were unable to enter the Kingston Mill locks because there was, a, there was oil on the water of the upper deck. And that morning, when a Parks Canada worker had arrived to open the gates, he had noticed oil in the water, and then a bit more upstream, there was a car that was partially submerged in the water. So the opening of the gates for the day was stopped. Now, believing at first it was a prank by teenagers who often did dump bikes and one time a snowmobile into the canal, a boater who was also a trained navy diver entered the water of the canal. He looked into the Nissan and, and saw a young woman's body floating in the front half of the vehicle. And he advised the investigators, and then an OPP diver was called in. And the bodies of four women were recovered. None of them were wearing seat belts, and the airbags had not deployed. The driver's window was fully lowered the rear window on the driver's side was down about an inch and the headlights were off and the keys were in the ignition. The gear shift was in first gear. The women were later identified as Sahar who was 17 and Rona who was 58. They were both in the rear seat. Zanab who was 19 and Gidi who was only 13 were floating above the front seats which were inclined at about a 45 degree angle. After the car was removed from the water, investigators confirmed that the keys were in fact in the ignition in the off but unlocked position and that the gear shift was in first gear. Beside the canal on the ground adjacent to where the car was had been found were the letters S and E, which later investigation determined that they were from the missing word Sentra, which was the model of the Nissan Um, that was in the canal, and they were broken pieces of clear plastic nearby, um, right around where the letters were found, and additional remnants a little bit distance away from that, a short distance away from that. Constable Glenn Newell found the whole thing very odd right away. The driver's side window was wide open, and none of the occupants had been wearing any seatbelts, and the car was only submerged about a meter deep. According to Newell, quote, In that shallow water, it would have made it simple for anybody who who could get to that window to get out. Now, it was difficult to tell which person would have been driving, and that bothered him as well, because in his experience, the driver would normally be in the proximity of the driver's seat area. Both people, particularly in the front seat, their legs were between the two bucket seats, which didn't make any sense, and he says that he was quite perplexed by that. Also, the contents of the car, which included a teddy bear, a cell phone, a blanket, and none of those had floated to the surface of the canal. Later on that day, Mohammed, Tuba, and Hamad all drove together to the Kingston police station and reported that they had been vacationing in Niagara Falls and staying at the Kingston East Motel, when Zanab had asked for the keys to the Nissan center to get some things from the car. Now this was at night so that everybody else was in bed or so they thought. And when they got up, Zanab, Sahar, Rona and Gidi were all gone. And they, they were supposed to check out that day from the motel. So Mohammed went down to the desk to ask if they could stay another day. But now there was only six of them. So we asked if he could get a discount. And the answer was no. Now, this vacation that they were on is very convoluted, so try to stay with me on this one. First of all, the family, like family road trips were not something that the Shafia family did normally, so this was a first. Mohammed purchased the Nissan Sentra on June 22nd. It was a 2004, and he paid $5,000 for it. It was supposed to be used as a second vehicle for this trip because not everybody would fit in the Lexus, Um, the SUV that they had. So we're talking about seven children and three adults. So no, they would not fit all in one car. And the other reason he said that he bought the car was because Zanab had been talking about getting her license. So this way she could use it for practice and then she would have it then when she got her license. So cool, cool, cool. That explains the car. Now the whole family left for this vacation on June 23rd, 2009 in the afternoon. And the plan was to take the Trans Canada all the way to Vancouver and they needed to take the shortest route that they could without dipping into the U.S. because Rona wouldn't have been able to get in with only a visitor's visa. Now those of you that live here in Canada can probably figure out that Montreal to Vancouver is a long ass drive. Uh, normally you leave pretty early in the morning on a road trip so that you can put in some distance at least before stopping, but they made it only about three and a half hours before stopping in Grand Remus where they had a barbecue and then stayed at a motel there. And just to put this a little bit into perspective for you listening in the U S Montreal to Vancouver is about the same as driving from New York to California. So the next morning they realized that Vancouver is a little bit too far for a road trip. That They were expecting the vacation to be over by July 1st because Hamad and Mohammed both had to be back in Montreal for work. So they decided, screw it, let's go to My- Niagara Falls instead. Now Niagara Falls is about a seven-hour drive from Grand Remus, so a bit more doable. So the family and the, both the vehicles arrived in Niagara Falls really early in the morning on June 25th. And they got two hotel rooms and stayed for four days. But a couple of odd things happened. On June 27th, so only two days into this stay in Niagara Falls, Muhammad takes the Lexus and starts to drive back to Montreal for business. He says that he figured that the rest of the family, so nine of them, they can just come home in the Nissan or take a train. But as Muhammad is just close to the Kingston Mills locks, which is where the Nissan will later be found in the canal, he gets a phone call from Sahar telling him that everybody's ready to come home now. So he turns around and rejoins them at the hotel. But this business must not have been that important because he sticks around with them until the 29th, and then on that night they leave Niagara Falls at 8 p.m. Again, a strange time to start a road trip. So at 2 a.m., they arrived in Kingston and check into the Kingston East Motel, and they got two rooms. And when the guy asked them how many people there were all together that were staying, Muhammad says six. To which Muhammad corrects him and says, no, dad, there's nine of us. Oh, right, right, right. Now, the reason there is nine is because Hamad wasn't going to be staying. He was heading to Montreal in the Lexus again, leaving them with only the Nissan and nine people. Uh, and the manager of the motel reported seeing the Lexus arrive and then leave around 2.15 a.m., but never did see a Nissan Sentra. Then before the Nissan was discovered, Hamad made a call to the Montreal police saying that he was in a parking lot and had just collided with a barrier and there was some damage to his front bumper. And then possibly at the time that the Nissan was discovered, but before making the police report to report the four members of the family missing, Mohamed called Hamad and tells him to return to Kingston in the family's minivan, which I guess they never thought of bringing a minivan on the trip despite the fact that there was 10 people on it. So Hamad returns to Kingston, and then they book the hotel rooms for two more days and then report the four women missing. And on the night that they decided that Vancouver was too far away, at 8.36 until 9.16, they stopped the Kingston Mill locks because the girls had to all use the washroom. But the washroom closes publicly at 7.30 at night now if this all wasn't sounding super suspicious already during this time the family was on the news showing off their crocodile tears and all their grief and investigators were busy doing an accident reconstruction and the autopsies as to the accident reconstruction i'm just going to read this directly from the court documents the nissan was a sentra model that had sustained damage to the rear on the driver's side the taillight was broken The letters S and E were missing from the rear nameplate. The same letters were found on the grass not far from the lock gate and a set of stairs. The Lexus had damage to the front cover, headlight, and bumper on the driver's side. Several plastic pieces from the broken headlight assembly were found in the rear cargo area of the vehicle. Plastic shards found at the lock site came from the Lexus broken headlight. It was common ground at trial that the Lexus and Nissan had been involved in a collision with the front end of the Lexus striking the rear end of the Nissan. A police mechanic testified that the Nissan was a front-wheel drive vehicle which, if on a level surface and in gear, with its ignition in the off position, would not move forward on its own. Once the vehicle's front wheels passed over the edge of the canal, they would not propel the vehicle forward. An accident reconstructionist explained that the Nissan entered the canal front end first. Its undercarriage was damaged behind the front axle, indicating that the axle fell over the edge at a low speed. Without force being applied to the rear end of the car, the Nissan could not have entered the water on its own. The accident reconstructionist concluded that the Lexus was used to push the Nissan into the water. The ignition and transmission settings of the vehicle were consistent with an attempt to propel the Nissan into the canal using its own power, but not driving it. A person standing on the ground beside the car could not reach through the open driver's window. It was unusual for a vehicle with an automatic transmission to be in first gear. With the ignition on and the transmission at first gear, the vehicle would accelerate without pressure on the accelerator. Okay, so that's not looking good. And then the autopsies. All of the deceased drowned. The post mortem examination revealed that three had bruising to their scalp. Rona had a, su- a fairly extensive area of bruising, comprising two distinct bruises on the inside of her scalp on the top of her head. The total area of bruising was six centimeters in diameter. Zanab had a four by five centimeter area of bruising on her right chest wall. She also had two bruises on her head, one on her scalp and the other on the top of her head, and her cardigan sweater was worn backwards. Gidi had bruising on her shoulder, which was four and a half by five centimeters, and on her scalp by three and a half by two and a half centimeters. The pathologist who conducted the post-mortem examination described the areas of bruising as fresh. Each bruise had been sus- had been sustained either shortly before or at least within 24 hours of death, the bruising to the scalps was unusual in that each of the deceased had suffered similar injuries, but no other injuries to their head or other parts of their bodies. The bruises were not of the kind that would be caused by striking the back of a padded seat, but rather required that a firm surface be struck with a sufficient degree of force. In conclusion, he said, acting on the authority of the coroner's warrant for postmortem examination, I hereby certified that I have examined this body, opened and examined the cavities." Organs and tissues, as indicated, and based on my findings and information made available to me, in my opinion, the cause of death was drowning. And to drown someone by holding their head underwater would likely have taken two to three minutes. So about 15 minutes would be required to drown four people into unconsciousness, one after the other. So the police do something that, to tell you the truth, I didn't know that they could do. They asked Tuba, Mohammed, and Hamed to come down to the Kingston station and pick up some stuff that they left at the hotel. And while they were there, they installed a vehicle probe to listen in on their conversations. And they also put up fake surveillance cameras outside the parks building and told them that they would be getting the footage from them very soon. You know, just to give them something to talk about and discuss on their drive home. I will be right back after these brief messages. Hamad, of course, mentioned the cameras, had he had been told that there were cameras as well near the water in the canal, and Tuba told him that they were lying. There were no cameras over there. I looked around. There wasn't any. And then there were other tidbits of conversation that they caught over the next few days. And in most of these, it's Mohammed doing the talking. Whatever she threw in her way, she did. We lost our honor. Even if they came back to life a hundred times, if I have a cleaver in my hand, I will cut her to pieces, not once, but a hundred times. As they acted that cruel towards me and you, for the love of God, what had we done to them? If we remain alive one night or one year, we have no tension in our hearts. Thinking that our daughter is in the the arms of this or that boy or the arms of this or that man, God curse their graduation, curse of God on both of them, on their kind, May the devil shit on their graves. Is that what a daughter should be? Would a daughter be such a whore? Honorless girl. Shameless girl with a bra and underwear. I swear to God that even those who do ads of such clothes are not like that. They've gone now. Shit on their graves. You convince me. Tell me this is where you messed up. I mean, as far as they are concerned, from the day they came into the world, as you often said, there was the car, the house, honor, and respect. You and I didn't do anything which would have been detrimental to them. So for this reason, whenever I see those pictures, I am consoled. I say to myself, you did well. Would they come back to life a hundred times for you to do the same again? That is how hurt I am, Tuba. They betrayed us immensely. They violated us immensely. There can be no betrayal, no treachery, no violation more than this by God." They committed treason themselves. It was all treason. They committed treason from beginning to end. They betrayed kindness. They betrayed Islam. They betrayed our religion and creed. They betrayed our tradition. They betrayed everything. Even if they hoist me up into the gallows, nothing is more dear to me than my honor. Let's leave our destiny to God and may God never make me, you, or your mother honorless. I don't accept this dishonor. I am telling you, this is my word to you. I am dead or alive. Nothing in the world is above more precious than your honor. There is nothing more valuable than honor. I am telling your mother that be like a man as you have always been. I know it hurts. I have passed more experience in life than you. Don't worry at all. Don't regret or wish that this would have happened or that would have happened. I am telling you now, I was telling you before, whoever play with my honor, my words are the same. There is no value of life without honor. Okay. So there's that. And just to top it all off, there was computer searches of mountains and bodies of water, including a map of the Kingston Mills Locks areas. Um, also included in the searches were, quote, facts, documentaries on murders, directions from the Shafia residents to Grand Remos, and then also where to commit a murder. So what the heck could Rona, Zanab, Sahar, and Giti all have done to have ruined the family's honor to the point that they had to die? So let's talk a little bit about these lovely women. As far as Rona is concerned, we know that she had requested a divorce and was unhappy in her marriage and life with Tuba. Although she adored all of the children, her diary wasn't the only clue into how bad things were for her in the Shafia house. When the rest of the family had originally moved to Canada, she had stayed in France with some of her siblings. And although she missed the kids a lot, she was quite a bit happier there. And even Tuba had told her that she should have stayed there. Tuba often told Rona that she was not Muhammad's wife, but Tuba's servant. And according to a relative that Rona often called, named Fahima Gvorgetz, she would call crying, telling her about her treatment. He would humiliate her. She said he would pull her hair, kick her with his foot. Almost every time she called, she'd be crying and crying and crying. She was hurt a lot. She said if she left the house, her husband said he would kill her. Or send her back to Afghanistan. Her husband's family has a lot of power and money, and they would kill her there. Zanab was a very lovely young woman who enjoyed the music of Britney Spears and liked fashion, but in the Shafia house, dating boys of your own choosing was strictly forbidden, and Zanab's brother Hamad was considered the man of the house whenever Muhammad was away. Um, And he was just as strict with the rules. So in 2008, when she received a Valentine's card from a boy in her English class at school named Amar, she, although she was very smitten with him, warned him that they had to be very careful and not to be found out by her brother. She told him in an email, be aware of my bro. If my bro is around, act like a complete stranger. I will call you when we're at school from the public telephone. In March 2008, she was caught by him with her brother and told that the relationship was over. And she was actually pulled out of school and had to attend night classes at another school with her brother also in attendance. A year later, she reached out to Amir to start the relationship back up again. And when they would meet secretly at a library or in restaurants. The family didn't like Amir because he was Pakistani. And according to Amir, during the prior year, she told me her dad was mad at her for what she did. That's why they took her out of school. It took some time for them to forgive her so that she could go back to school. She said that she stayed in her room all day, coming out only for meals to avoid getting mean looks from her father and brother. Once when both of her parents were out of the country, Zanab invited Amar over to the house and she hid him in the basement. It was also referred to as the garage, but Hamad had come home unexpectedly and discovered Amar there and asked him to leave. And after that incident, Zanab started to be physically abused by her brother Hamad. So she actually fled the family home and wound up in a women's shelter. And then she cut off all contact with most of her family. And Safar and Geeti freaked out when they found out that Zanab had left home and they were terrified of their dad's reaction when he found out about it. So they went to the police themselves and got an escort home. And when they were, you know, they were telling the police all about the violence in the home. But when Muhammad showed up, they clammed up right away and stopped talking. And a couple of days later, the police did try to talk to them both again at their school with their dad not around. Gidi wanted to be put in foster care that very day. And Sahar told them that her brother Hamad had hit her before, uh, but nothing was done about it. Hamad called the police to report Zanab missing and when they tracked her down at the shelter she said that she didn't feel safe at home and wasn't going to go back. Hamad had claimed that she had been kidnapped by Amar and the police determined that she was over 18 so they sided with Zanab about it and didn't make her go home but the family hounded the two of them and finally Zanab agreed to meet with Tuba who pleaded with her to come home and that everything was going to be different now and she could marry Amar if she really wanted to. So Zanab agreed and came home on May 1st of 2009 um, with, and at the time Muhammad was out of the country on business on May 18th, they were actually married under a Muslim marriage contract and the reception was planned for the following day. Only that was a disaster because Amar's parents had also objected to the marriage and refused to attend. So the marriage was annulled and actually never registered with the province of Quebec, uh, and it had all been kind of a ruse by Tuba and Hamad to get her to come home and instead marry this other man that they thought was a better prospect for her. On June 2nd, Zanab wrote a heartfelt email to Amar saying, Even one day if son- something happens to us like dead, I won't die without my dream being fulfilled. We had an amazing love story together. I'm going to write it down with all mine and your pictures. I will always keep that book and on top of it I will write true love story and maybe one day if we meet when we are all old I will give it to you to see. Love you, take care, Zainab. Sahar was the second oldest daughter of Tuba and the one that had been given to Rona when she was a month old. She had long been considered the favorite of Muhammad's children by him. As she had dreams to become a gynecologist and help women in Afghanistan. In February of 2009, Zanab had introduced Sahar to a man named Ricardo Sanchez, who was originally from Honduras, that Zanab knew from night school. And Ricardo and Sanar started a secret relationship together as well. She had secretly made plans to run away to Honduras with Ricardo and get married. But of course, that never came to be. It was alleged that Hamad had found a photograph of Sahar wearing lingerie, so things did became not so great for her at home as well. Sahar's French teacher later testified that she had been concerned over Zahar's frequent absences from school. She opened up that she was sad because members of her family had been told not to speak to her. There was also a lot of problems between her and Tuba, who wanted her to wear the hijab. Now, things got so bad that Rona had written in her diary, one day Tuba told Sahara to come and peel some potatoes. Sahara told her sister Gidi to go get and bring the potatoes to her. Tuba said to Sahara, You bootlick and fawn on others but will not come to do my bidding. So she summoned Sahara to her and gave her a tongue lashing. Later Sahara came home and mixed the medicine in handbags for preservation and some water and drank it. When I came and saw what had happened, I was very upset. I slapped myself and said, Why do you want death? Why did you take medicine to commit suicide? And her mother said, She can go to hell, let her kill herself. The staff at the school were pretty concerned over Zahar and her home life as well, and they had tried to call CPS fearing that she was either suicidal or being physically abused. But Zahar was too afraid to tell CPS workers anything, and so the file was closed. A year later, Zahar told the school staff member that Muhammad had found out about her relationship with Ricardo and that she was in fear for her life. So another call was made to CPS on June 5th, and that worker testified that Zahar had disclosed her hopes of renting an apartment. So she was asking her to help her set aside some money that she could leave home as soon as she reached 18. Her brother had a lot of control over her, and he he also wanted her to wear the hijab he wanted to pick her friends. So the worker assured Sahar that she was going to help her find a job, and they agreed to meet again the following day, but Sahar never came back. Gidi, who was only 13 when she was killed, was always a little bit of a spitfire. She was also the one that defied her parents' rules the most. She wasn't afraid to come home a little bit later than her curfew. She was once caught shoplifting, and sometimes she skipped school. She was also failing three of her four school subjects and had been sent home once for showing too much cleavage. But she was a tough little bird and not willing to back down and cower from her father and brother's abuse. In April of 2009, when Gidi and Sahar had called 911 over fears about Zanab's having left the house and that their dad's reaction when he found out about it, Gidi was brave enough to tell them that a week earlier they had gotten home late and her dad pulled her hair and struck her in the face, and her brother Hamad had also hit her before. While Sahar recanted the story later when Muhammad showed up at the house, Gidi did not. And the next day when the police showed up at her school, she wanted out. She wanted out now. And she asked if she could go immediately into foster care. Detective Natalie Laramie had asked her why she wanted that. And she had said that she said she had no freedom. She wanted to be like her friends and to go out, but she hadn't been able to get enough evidence to support an abuse charge and had to leave it in the hands of child welfare workers and all they did was close the file. Gidi, who had a special relationship with her big sister, Sahar, had allegedly made a plan to run away together, and perhaps they had planned on taking Gidi with her to Honduras. Gidi wrote an email to Sahar not long before they both died. Dear Zahar, I don't know what I'm going to do if you leave the house one day. I promise that before I die, I'm going to make sure that all your wishes come true. I wish that we are never separated. Best sisters. At the trial in 2012, in which Hamad, Mohammed, and Tuba were all tried together for four counts each of first-degree murder, Rona's diary was read in a lot more detail, and if you want more of her words and more details about it, there is a Toronto Star publication by Rosie D'Amano and Andrew Chung called Inside the Shafiaf Murder Trial, and you can find that online. One of the witnesses that testified at the trial was Sharad Mahab from the University of Toronto, who is an expert on honor killings. And she testified that it doesn't have any direct connection with religion at all. It's not unique to particular religion. We see it amongst Hindus. We see it amongst Jews and Christians in the Middle East region. It's also not limited to the Middle East or the Arab world. If a man cannot control his own household, which is represented by the behavior of the female members of the family, he cannot be trusted in any other public matters, including financial relationships. A woman's body is considered to be the repository of family honor. A man's honor lies between the legs of a woman. It is a part of the continuum of love and care. Living as a dishonored member of the family, the suffering of that is greater than death. So if a woman's reputation is perceived to be tainted through premarital sex or rape, taking an unauthorized boyfriend, asking for a divorce, or even exhorting her independence, cleansing one's honor of shame is typically handled by the shedding of blood. It's really about men's need to control women's sexuality and freedom. So after about 15 hours of deliberation, all three of them were convicted, and Justice Robert Marenger said, "'There is nothing more honorless,' than the deliberate murder of, in the case of Muhammad Shafia, three of his daughters and his wife, and in the case of Tuba Yara, three of her daughters and a stepmother to all of her children. In the case of Hamad Shafia, three of his sisters and a mother. The apparent reason behind these cold-blooded, shameful murders was that the four completely innocent victims offended your twisted concept of honor, a notion of honor that is founded upon in domination and control of women, a sick notion of honour that has absolutely no place in any civilised society. For these crimes, for these murders, the sentence is mandatory as set out in the Criminal Code of Canada. Imprisonment without the eligibility of parole for 25 years. And that's the sentence of the court for each of you. When given a chance to speak, Muhammad said, Your honour, we are not criminals, we are not murderers, we didn't commit the murder, this is unjust. Tuba said, I'm not a murderer, I am a mother a mother. And Hamad said, sir, I did not drown my sisters anywhere. In 2015, all three of them appealed and they were all denied. And then in 2018, the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada it revoked both Tuba and Mohammed's permanent residencies, and they were ordered to be deported back to Afghanistan, but not until after they served their sentences. Um, and they're not allowed to appeal that decision. Now, it's unclear if that's the, if the deport. Deportation is after they are paroled or after the sentence itself is concluded, which is life, but likely means in 2034 when they are eligible for parole. In 2017, Tuba filed for divorce from Muhammad. In 2019, Tuba managed to get an escorted leave to go to visit her mother's grave. She told the parole board that she had unfinished business with her mom and that she had hated her for allowing her to be married to Muhammad when she was only 17. And that since being incarcerated, she feels she has actually more freedom than when she was married and finally admitted her role in the murders. Parole board wrote in their decision You are considered engaged in your correctional plan. Moreover, you shared during the hearing that you are now more confident, more in control of your life, and now know your rights. The board understands that you can now make your own decisions and follow your own values. You are no longer being controlled by your husband and even filed for divorce. You shared at the hearing that since you became incarcerated, you have discovered freedom. You feel guilty for the death of your daughters and for leaving your surviving children behind. You also shared that after you got married, your husband would not let you talk to or see your mother anymore. She was eventually diagnosed with Alzheimer's and would not recognize you anymore, referring to you as her niece instead of her daughter. She died before you had the opportunity to see her again and never got to say goodbye. For you to go to the grave and pay your respects in the presence of your three young surviving children would enable you to move forward in your mourning process. The board is of the opinion that permitting you to grieve your mother may also help you process the death of your three daughters. You said that you cannot change the past. You also mentioned that the absence would be a first step into your social reintegration into society. You confirmed that your husband, with the complicity of your son, committed the murder in front of your eyes. You explained that around 2 a.m. the night of the event, you and the four victims were waiting for them in the Nissan at the Kingston Mills Locks while they went to find a motel, as you were too tired and sick to keep driving. When they returned, your husband told you to get in the Lexus to rest, and you settled in the back seat. He then took your place in the driver's seat of the Lexus and drove it into the Nissan, in which your three daughters and your husband's first wife were sitting. You immediately asked what was going on. He answered that he was going to kill them. You tried to grab him from behind, pleading for him not to do this. You tried to open the door, but couldn't. He then hit the Nissan with the Lexus a second time, and you saw the Nissan plunge into the water. You mentioned that after the fact, your son sat with you and calmly held your hand, and you explained that you did not know about your husband's plan to kill the victims. I still call BS on this because Tuba wasn't actually all that controlled in her marriage. Um, She did not wear a hijab. She came and went as she wanted from the house, and she was able to get her driver's license. But that is her current claim. Um, At that time, she was in a medium security facility with hopes to move to a minimum security. And that was the murders of Rona Amir Zahab, Sahar, and Gibi Shafia. I will be back again next week with another case... As always, thank you so much for listening.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.